The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined by a one-of-a-kind musical artist and teacher. Happy Trom is a folk singer, musical artist, writer, performing, and recording artist. He has appeared and recorded with the likes of John Sebastian, Bob Dylan, Larry Campbell, Allen Ginsberg, Eric Anderson, just to name a few. He has the most memorable name in show business, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, yeah. Happy Trump. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. So how are things up in Woodstock, New York? What is the weather like? What's what's going on? Well, it's actually been a pretty damp and chilly spring so far. We've had a lot of rain, and today it's a little like probably mid-50s or so, a little cooler than uh, normal for this time of year. But um the the bugs aren't out yet, so that that ha- probably helps that. Uh, but it's it's beautiful. The blossoms are all out, and the leaves are filling the trees, and it's it's just a wonderful time of year now. And this room that you're in right now, this is where you do your work. That's right. Well, this is my kind of office uh, study. It's where I, yeah, it's it's pretty much where I play my guitars and you know do all my emailing and writing. I um, I don't. I don't produce videos here, although I do do some some uh, kind of um, informal lessons from here uh, and some songs that I post on Facebook or YouTube or whatever. You know, we have a, a studio somewhere else where I where I do my real formal guitar lessons for Homespun, our company. What has always been the purpose of the art you create? You know, it's always been to communicate and help others enjoy and play the music. Ever since I started playing, which was when I was in high school back in the 50s, early part of the 50s, you know, not long after I started playing myself and getting halfway good at it, I started enjoying teaching others. For some, I don't know why, for some weird reason to this day. Well, when I learn something new in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. How can I show this to somebody else to learn? You know, so it's kind of like been part of my psyche, for some, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason, pretty much all my life. So I, I was a guitar teacher for a number of years when I was first starting out. And I kind of continue that at guitar camps, you know, especially before the pandemic, I was doing three or four of those a year. Now I've, I've got two of them coming up this summer and hopefully that'll be okay. But, um, and of course I teach on video a lot. I'm just curious because actually the first time I, I 
heard about you and the first time I heard about the late Artie Trom, my first broadcasting gig, I was on Radio Margaritaville, which is owned by Jimmy Buffett. And the program director, Steve Huntington, he was playing you guys. And I'm just curious, did, did you ever meet Jimmy Buffett through the years? I never met him personally. Nope. Don't know him at all. Did you know they were playing your music on Radio Margaritaville? No, I didn't. <laughs> just <laughs> wondering. Enough. Yeah. As I was mentioning at the top, there's all these different things that you can say through the years you've done from mm -hmm. making these records, performing in Europe, Canada, the United Kingdom, elsewhere, mm -hmm. teaching countless people. Is there a part in music that you would say gives you the most joy? You know, I've, I've just always loved playing the guitar. I like acoustic guitar, acoustic music in general. I'm pretty bad at electric guitars. I've never, I mean, I've played them, of course, over the years, and I've just never made it part of my life. So I just love the sound of the wooden box with steel strings. So that just always endlessly gives me pleasure. And as actually, as I speak, and this is, I'm giving you an exclusive here. This is the first. I've just gotten my first signature guitar ah. that Santa Cruz Guitars just put out. They, they haven't even made the announcement yet, but they will in the next week or so. So um, my my love for guitars carries on to a model that Santa Cruz now has with my name on it, which is really nice. And the other thing that I, I, just, I love to play for people. I love to get up in front of an audience and just share my music with, with people. And I can't say, although I have played some big places, most of my shows are in small halls or folk clubs and things like that. And that's fine. I mean, you know, I like being up close and personal with people anyway. Or I did before it was dangerous to be up <laughs> close and personal, you know. Has there been a favorite place to perform through the years? You know, it, it's it's varied over the years. I've I've had so many years of that kind of thing. I mean, naturally, I love to play locally here. I live in Woodstock, New York, and we've got some beautiful venues here, including a just just completed uh, renovation on the Bearsville Theater, which has just become a gorgeous place. And I'm doing something there on June 5th with some other local artists. Uh, it's going to be a Bob Dylan tribute. There's some festivals I love. Merle Fest down in North Carolina is a place I've been playing and participating in pretty much every year for the last 30 years or so, which, you know, this was uh, Doc Watson started this in memory of his son Merle, and uh, it's become a huge event uh, in, in North Carolina, usually in the spring. They skip this spring. It's going to be in the fall, and then by 2022, it'll be back in the spring again, I hope. So that's a, a wonderful place to play. Uh, you know, there there are places around the country. McCabe's in in L.A. is a place I've always loved to play. It's uh, it's wonderful to play in a little a little hall that's surrounded by acoustic instruments all over the place. You know, they kind of resonate as you're playing. So yeah, there are a lot of places that I've I've loved to play over the years. Who would you say are the guitar players who have made the biggest influence on you? Uh, the first one was, uh, and, and the most personal one to me was Brownie McGee, who was, of course, a, a great blues 
fingerstyle player, Piedmont blues artist. And uh, he um, he came from an area of just southern Tennessee near the Virginia border, Kingsport, Tennessee. But he came to New York in the 1940s and in the 50s. Um, I started taking lessons with him in the late 50s. And he became a friend and we wrote a book together called The Guitar Styles of Brownie McGee. Uh, and he was a, just a huge influence on my playing. Uh, he taught me a lot of stuff that I incorporate to this day in my in my music. And then there are people who were um, more well. When I was coming up, people that I when I was used to go every Sunday to Washington Square Park, and I'd play with other contemporaries of mine who taught me a lot. And then, of course, on record, people like Mississippi John Hurt. Uh, the great fingerstyle blues artist. Um, he was a, a really big influence. Merle Travis uh, was a big influence. Doc Watson, of course, a huge influence. Not that I could play like them. Uh, I wouldn't even come close. But uh, but they. If you're asking about who influenced me, the, that's the. Those are the people guitar wise, that were you know early influences. But there are so many of them, and many of them I I actually got to record both. Well, with on on records of mine, but also um, on my company Homespun Tapes, I got to record some of my heroes in an instructional mode, which was really a great honor and thrill for me. And you have a very warm voice, I think. Can you tell us the the vocalists who have influenced you the most? Boy, I don't consider myself that much of a singer. I, you know, it, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. They're vocalists that I I just love, but I don't know who's, you know, I I kind of think I have I pretty much singing is I sing who I am. I don't try to imitate anybody else uh, for better or worse. Uh, you know, I think I'm a fair to average singer, and and uh, I just have always just tried to be myself when I sing. You know, I try to get better through the years, and now I think. Uh, at my advanced age, I think I'm sort of mellowing, as they say, like fine cheese. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think my voice has gotten richer through the years just because uh, of experience. And, and you know, some people lose their voices when they're my age, but I don't feel that's happened, fortunately. You were mentioning being able to produce these, these different instructional tapes with some of these right. really legendary people. Has there mm -hmm. been somebody that you've met that in particular you were in awe getting to work around them? So many. <laughs> Doc Watson was one. Tony Rice was one who was just, a, you know, one of the great acoustic guitar, guitar geniuses. David Grisman, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas. I mean, the, the Pete Seeger, who was my now Pete, talk about influences. Pete Seeger was probably my biggest not influence on the guitar, but just in general, uh, he inspired me to start playing. He inspired me to learn hundreds of songs, both of his and then through him, I got to listen to Lead Belly, who was a giant influence on my. He's another one that was a big influence on just on my appreciation of traditional music. Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, Josh White, uh, Reverend Gary Davis, another one who's, I never got to record him, but certainly he was a, a giant in my, in my world growing up. 
I knew him in New York City, got to play with him, got to go to parties with him and all that kind of thing. You know, I could I could go on. There could be hundreds of people that I would I could list like that. It's a pretty uh through my life I've just been in awe of so many people that that are such wonderful musicians, you know, that uh of instruments that I don't play as well as guitar. You know, Mark O'Connor, who who's an amazing guitarist, but best known as a violin fiddler. And my brother Artie, I should mention, was a huge influence, even though he was five years younger than me. He was an astonishingly good guitar player and singer and songwriter. And even, you know, the older brother looking up to the younger brother in that case, uh, he was somebody I was in awe of through our whole life together. And, and we played together for about 40 years before he passed away. So that was, that was a really big influence on me as well. What would you say a, a musical artist could learn from Pete Seeger? Boy, so much. To me, for one thing, is Pete's integrity. You know, he sang what he meant and he meant what he sang. I mean, he was just the kind of person. Also, he was the kind of guy who was the, to me, he was the same on stage and off stage. I, I saw so many times when he'd get on stage, do a show, get off stage, and he'd be exactly the same person he was 10 minutes before. He even came to visit us, stayed at our house a few times, and we'd be up at night talking, and he'd grab his banjo and just start playing and getting us to sing along with him. <laughs> he went on stage. And just the, you know, he's very known as a folk singer who loved to lead people in song, which he did. But he had such a generous spirit. He was so open. He, I never heard him criticize anybody as being a bad guitarist or a bad singer. He didn't like overly commercial things. He didn't like soupy, saccharine songs. For him, a song had to have meaning of some kind, even if not necessarily political, but if it was political, that was even better for him. And he had a huge breadth of knowledge of American folk songs. He knew hundreds and hundreds of songs, aside from the ones that he wrote himself. So he was he was a major influence on me and on countless other people. When you go through the discography of Happy Trom and you listen to all the different stuff, there's a great variety. You know, there's mm -hmm. Irish songs. There's things like, you know, I really love the instrumental you did of Tennessee Waltz. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Very cool. How would you describe the music that you've recorded? Well, I went through a variety of different stages. Of course, when I was recording with my brother, it was more the songs that we were writing together or that he wrote, um, a few of them that I wrote. And we were, we were trying, you know, that was, we recorded for Capitol Records back in the early 70s. We got on with the help of the guys from the band who were also on Capitol Records. We're all friends of ours and Albert Grossman, who was our manager and his. So we were looking to be kind of, um, and we were compared in some strange way with the band. Those guys also were a big influence on me and on us as a duo. So we were sort of going for that kind of sound. Then later on, the, the third album we made after we were 
dropped from Capitol. We went to Rounder, which is a folk record. We made several albums for Rounder. And they were much more folk and country-oriented. And then anything I did since then was mostly solo with accompaniment. So it was all me and my acoustic guitar with some great players playing behind me. So, you know, different... I, I went through a variety of different things, but I'm working on a, another CD now. What I do is I go in the studio with my guitar and one or two other people, and we just cut something live and see what, what comes out. So it's very organic, and it's not heavily produced or, you know, not we don't go wild with sound effects and, and overdubs and all that stuff. It's just whatever it is, it is, and, and I like it that way. Any time frame on when the new record will come out? You know, I I did the basic tracks for uh, about five songs in November and December of 2019. And I was going to come back. I went out of town for a couple of months, and I was going to come back at the end of February, beginning of March, and continue. And then the pandemic hit. Everything was shut down. So I've just gotten back to it in the past few weeks, really. I just finished recording a song written by my, my really dear old friend, Eric Anderson. And that we finished very quickly, which was really great. Uh, and it's going to go on a tribute record to him, of which this track will be my contribution, but it'll also be on my new CD. I'm thinking I'm going to try to get the rest of my songs done by June, maybe, maybe July, and then I would say it'll be out by, I'm hoping it'll be out by the fall. But with CDs these days, you even wonder why anybody would put out a CD. I don't even know. My last CD was called Just for the Love of It, and that's pretty much why I put that one out. <laughs> so I've come up with a with a similar title for this one. Maybe it'll be called, I don't know why I'm doing it, but here's another CD. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tell us a little bit about Eric Anderson. He was a guest on the show, and you want to talk about just an amazing talent. Tell us about him. Yeah, Eric um, has. I've known Eric since probably. Well, I'm not. I knew him in the village in the '60s in passing, but we got to know each other in the '70s when he moved to Woodstock for a period of time, and we became really good friends and remain so to this day. And Eric is also a multifaceted artistic guy. Uh, he's a, in fact, he's got a film coming out called Song Poet, and he's very poetic. He's very influenced by romantic poetry and by people like uh, Joni Mitchell and Patti Smith, both of whom were close friends of his, Lou Reed, Leonard Cohen. Uh, these were people I didn't know personally, but he was very close to these kinds of artists. And I did know him and his late ex-wife, Debbie Green, who was a wonderful performer and musician as well. Eric and I played together quite a lot here in Woodstock. We played in Norway together back in the 80s. And uh, he's, a, he's a generous soul. He's a very sweet guy. Um, he's um, very creative. He's written some really amazing songs. So he's best known for his early songs like Thirsty Boots and Close the door lightly. And, you know, the, the songs he wrote in the late sixties, but Blue River, I mean, is a song for the ages. He's, he's just a, a wonderfully talented guy. And, um, 
He lives in Europe now, but um, I'm hoping he'll be able to come back once everybody's vaccinated and things are a little more back to normal and we'll get together again. The song I I recorded of his is called Mary, I'm Trying to Get Home. It's a wonderful ballad about a guy who's on the road and is just longing for his wife in his home. And he keeps being out there in the, you know, in the, in the prairies and, and out in the, on the road and just longing to be in his wife's arms again. So it's, it's, it's it really struck me as a great song for me to sing. And I'm really happy with the way it came out. It was on Saturday. I was taping an interview with another Woodstock, New York resident. And I know there's a few that probably could come to mind there, but this was with Cindy Cash Dollar. Oh, yeah. And uh, she's on that Eric Anderson record I just recorded. She played on that one. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. She played beautifully. Yeah, of course. She played beautifully. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> she brought you up during the interview, and I said, you know, it's a small world because about five minutes before we just started taping this, I got an email from Happy Trom. She said, oh, just like that. And I said, well, I emailed him first, but <laughs> he did email me. She said in the interview, now, Happy, he works hard. Why do you think some artists make it and some artists don't? You know, that's that's a huge question. And I'm not sure I could say I made it. I mean, I, I'm kind of small potatoes compared to a lot of other artists. Um, I just have been going about my life trying to do what I do and and I think I've made a lot of friends along the way. But I think, you know, in terms of, I think a lot of it has to do with luck. There's some really, really talented people who nobody ever heard of and a lot of sort of mildly talented people who are world famous. <laughs> but I think hard work has something to do with it. I mean, Cindy's a perfect example of somebody who not only has enormous talent, but all her life, and I've known her since she was a teenager, has worked really hard at her craft. She's a very diligent artist. And when you give her a song to do, she doesn't just knock it out. She really listens. She works on it. She pays attention to everything. And I think that's part of her success. Other people just have a unique something that's um, that you can't even define somebody who's got, well, you know, Bob Dylan has it in spades. You can't say exactly why Bob Dylan is who he is. I mean, he's, of course, he's a genius, but there's a quality of about him, not even his songs, but just what he emanates as a person that just draws people to him and always has since he was 20 years old and just arriving in New York. It's, and I think there are a lot of artists who have that charisma, I guess you'd call it. So, you know, it's a, it's a big combination of why some people are really widely known, why they, but of course, talent has a lot to do with it too. Just hmm. natural, innate talent, but hard work is part of it as well. On the note of Bob Dylan, the first time you met him, was there any kind of indication from you that he would become the artist that he is? You know, right from the beginning, I thought he was special. We saw, I saw him play in small clubs in New York, like uh, Gertie's Folk City and um, the Gaslight Cafe. And uh, we became friends with him early on before people really knew who he was. But there was something that he 
again that that ineffable something that he that he emanated uh there was an excitement there was a a humor you don't get that from him these days i've seen many concerts uh, of him in the last 10 years or so and i don't see that humor on stage at any rate he used to talk a lot on on stage he'd get on stage and he would he'd talk more than he sang songs and I remember we had this group called the New World Singers, which was a quartet for a while that I was, it was a, it was a trio that I was asked by Gil Turner, who was kind of the leader and lead singer of the group. He asked me to join towards the end of 1962, this would have been. Bob was a big fan of the group uh, and he used to come and see us at Gertie's Folk City and he would get up on stage during the late night, you know, we'd play maybe four sets a night, and the last one would be at twelve thirty, one in the morning, and there might be a dozen people left, you know, and half of them were drinking too much and falling asleep at the table, you know. And Bob would get up on stage and do a song or two, and that was the first time I ever heard "Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall." Was him just standing up at one of our gigs and singing this song, and I almost fell off my chair hearing that song, and. As I was listening to him, I can remember thinking, he's going to be really famous sometime, someday. But in my mind, what really famous meant was really famous like Woody Guthrie, who was famous to a small cross-section of sort of folkies and leftists uh, who loved that kind of politically charged songs. It never entered my mind that he would become world famous, that everybody pretty much, you know, you'd have to search really hard to find somebody who didn't know his name. That kind of famous, I it, it didn't wasn't in my capacity to think about that much at that time. But I did think he was going to be somebody special, for sure. The times that you, you created these recordings with him, was there anything that he did that you would say was different from other artists? Everything was different. <laughs> his um, his approach to the songs that, you know, when he put out his first Columbia album, which when I first heard it, I wasn't sure because he was doing folk songs mostly that I knew, but his uh, interpretation of them was so wildly, wildly different. You know, there, it, was, it was, most of the folk singers were playing pretty songs. They were, they were playing pretty guitar parts. They weren't, you know, strumming the guitar and singing strident, you know, except for the the blues singers from Mississippi that we were listening to, the Sun House and, you know, Skip James and people like that who had rough voices. But Bob was different. You know, everybody was sort of trying to cultivate really pretty voices. You think even of the first people that sang his songs, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, they had beautiful theatrical-type voices. I mean, not taking away from their artistry, which was great, but Bob didn't sound anything like any of those people. And a lot of people just couldn't stand his singing. Hmm. There were other people, I have to say, now, now that I think about it, like Dave Van Runk, who was also a big influence on us in the village. He had a very kind of a rough-edged voice, and I think Bob might have taken some some of that in from his approach. He, he loved Van Runk and learned a lot of songs from him. But but nobody sounded quite like Bob did, even right from the beginning. And, of course, when he started writing songs and coming out with these, you know, the songs from his second album, 
you know, other people were writing songs in the village that were we were all hanging out. But my God, the the stuff that he was writing was just like nobody else. So yeah, it was it was just a whole different thing. Not that they weren't great writers, you know, Tom Paxson, Phil Oaks, Buffy St. Marie, you know, all these people were writing good songs. Most of the people were singing traditional songs back then. You know, some people had written songs, and certainly Pete Seeger wrote I Fired a Hammer and some other songs like that. But as singer-songwriters were just coming to the forefront in the early 60s. So, Happy, how do you define good music? <laughs> I can't. I have no idea. You know, if it reaches me, if it if it touches me, it's good. And if it doesn't, it's not. And there's, you know, I listen to music now. You know, I listened to part of the Grammys uh, whenever it was a couple of months ago. And I, I couldn't relate to it. There was almost nothing I could relate to on it. That doesn't mean it's not good music. It just means I couldn't really. It, it just it didn't touch me because... I don't know. I'm an old folky, I guess, you know, but there are some young people that I listen to that I just, you know, can't believe how, how wonderful they are. Not even young necessarily. I mean, you know, people like Gillian Welsh and David Rawlings or people like, uh, my friends, um, Mike and Ruthie from the, and the mammals. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I run into people all the time whose music just grabs me and, and wraps around me and, and I can't, I, I want to listen to more of it. Even, you know, there's some really young people, Billy Strings, for instance. I don't know if you've heard him. He's a kind of a bluegrass country guy who's just an enormously talented uh, young artist. So Sarah Jarros, people like that. Sarah Watkins, younger younger artists who just that. And I guess I, I really respond to acoustic music of all kinds and rootsy music, music that I feel comes from somewhere in the earth, you know, that's my kind of where I live. Uh, whereas, um, other kinds of music, um, my granddaughter is totally into hip hop music. She dances it. She listens to it. You know, I, I just, I understand, I understand the talent and the, and the, um, the, the enormous, uh, appeal it has, but it doesn't, touch my heart. But again, you know, I'm an old folky. What do I know? <laughs> well, not only from your perspective as a performer yourself, but also you having seen so many people take the stage, what do you think makes for a good performer? I think a good performer for me is somebody who, who reaches out to the audience and plays to I don't want to say place to the crowd because that, that almost has a negative connotation, but somebody who understands what people are looking for and feeds that to them in a way and, and gets it back from them. I think it's a give and take. Any good performer reaches out to people. And I've seen performers who, who are on stage and they look like they're reaching out, but you know, in their head, they're not even thinking about the people who are listening to them. They're thinking about something else and other people. You know, some people just dial it in, especially people who are on tour all the time, big name people who you go to hear them and you're all excited about hearing them and you feel like what they're doing is just 
Same thing they did in Cleveland yesterday or in Des Moines the day before. Other people, you know, a couple of years ago, I went to Willie Nelson concert in our area here. Um, it was three or four years ago. And you felt like he was playing to you or somebody like um, Lyle Lovett, who plays all the time, tours around all the time. His concert really felt like he was reaching out to you, that, that you meant something to them. To him, um, so you know, I think I think that's what makes a great performer to me is somebody who understands their audience and and really tries to give something of themselves to the audience, you know. And and it's wonderful. I'll tell you who the best. Now this is getting back to the sort of folk country bluegrass artist, but I think the best performer that one of the best solo performers I ever heard in my life was John Hartford who I got to know somewhat, was friendly with, and he made a couple of videos for Homespun for my company. But John Hartford could get on stage with his fiddle or his banjo, and he always had a little board that was mic'd that he sort of tap danced on as he was performing. And the minute he got in front of that mic, you felt the audience was right there, right in his hand. And it was just a remarkable thing to see. And people who could do that, and I... You know, in my way, that's what I try to do if I'm on stage. I try to reach out and really engage people in what I'm trying to tell them, what I'm trying to give them. And, you know, I, I always hope it works. And usually, even if it's 20 people in the audience, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to give them that. Well, if anybody out there is thinking about picking up an instrument, we're living in an ideal time for that. They can go yeah. on homespun.com, or maybe they play an instrument and they are thinking about picking up a second instrument, but they, they want to learn. You can learn, just get the ball rolling, homespun.com. Do you have any idea of perhaps how many people have learned to play an instrument from homespun tapes? No idea, <laughs> but I'm sure it's in the hundreds of thousands or more. I don't know. We, it's been going now for... 52, 53 years since our very first, our very first tapes were on reel to reel, little five inch reel to reel tapes that we sent out, uh, that we copied on our kitchen table. Literally, it was home spun. Um, a couple of years later, cassettes came, audio cassettes came in. So that was a revelation to us. And then it wasn't until 15 years later or so that VHS videos came in. And of course, our name for many, many years was Homespun Tapes. It's still our legal name, but we don't call it Homespun Tapes anymore because people under a certain age just don't know what a tape is. And, and in fact, our lessons are primarily acquired now by download or streaming, not by sending out physical product. We went DVDs many years, and that, but we have probably 600 or more lessons and close to 300 instructors. Hmm. So, you know, and some of them are classic people that sadly have passed away. I mean, we've got legends like Doc Watson, Bill Monroe, Ralph Stanley, Pete Seeger, John Hartford, Dr. John, Hubert Sumlin, blue, great blues artist who played with uh, Howlin' Wolf. 
Levon Helm and Rick Danko from the band, you know, people who are no longer with us, but I feel through our service, through our lessons, people can continue to learn from them and hear their musical ideas, hear how they thought about things. Tony Rice is another one who's one of our bestsellers. I mean, you can actually hear how Tony puts together his guitar solos by listening to his, I want to almost say tapes, <laughs> listening to his lessons uh, on Homespun. So, and um, I have to just add here that it's not a solo thing for me. My wife, Jane, has been part of it from the beginning. Uh, she's handled the business. And to this day, she's uh, an integral part of everything that goes on with Homespun. And, and we, we live and breathe it. So it's it's so much a part of our lives that, um, you know, that's the one part of my life. And another part is the performing and making CDs and for what it's worth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and occasionally writing articles and blogs and stuff like that. Well, I still say every time I do an interview, I say we're taping it. I know tape has no part in it anymore, but I still say that. Yeah. Is there a song that means the most to you? Well, it changes all the time. A couple of songs that my brother wrote, one called Rabbit's Luck, which is on our first album and uh, for Capital. And uh, I re-recorded it as a live version some years later. And I still play it from time to time. That's a song that means a lot to me. A song I wrote called Golden Bird also was on our first Capitol album, but Levon Helm recorded it on his last CD, which was a huge thrill for me. Um, that CD won a Grammy, and so um, one of my songs is on a Grammy-winning record, which means a huge amount. And uh, there are a couple of Pete Seeger songs that are hugely meaningful to me. One called... Of course, now that I'm this age, it's called Old Devil Time. I'm going to fool you now. You thought you'd bring me down, but with my with the love of my friends, I'm going to keep going pretty much is what it says. And, and also another song of Pete's called um, Quite Early Morning, which Pete said many times was his favorite song that he wrote. And that one has some very meaningful words about hope for the future of our of our, you know, mankind pretty much. And he says, when these fingers can strum no longer, hand my old guitar to a young one stronger. Every time I sing that verse, it gives me chills. Hmm. That's one song. It's been done many, many times by many people, but I'm thinking I might put that on my CD because it's just such a wonderful song. Mm, that'd be great. Yeah. What do you think, Happy, about the American songbook? The songs made famous by people like Sinatra, Tony Bennett, those old, you know, sometimes oh, called yeah. the, the Great American Songbook. Yeah, I think those songs, there's a, there's a good reason they've stood the test of time. I mean, the songs by Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, Hoagie Carmichael, you know, they just go on and on. And some of them have become almost like American folk songs because – you know, they've, they've been done so many times, they're just part of the fabric of, of American life. And I think, you know, they're just fabulous songs. And uh, 
there's very few that I play because I I don't feel that I can do justice to them. But but I love to listen to them, and occasionally I'll try out a song or two. You know, um, some of my favorites. Uh, it's very clear. Our love is here to stay. Is one of the ones that I particularly love. A Gershwin song. My good friend uh, Jim Queskin does some early. He does. I don't think he does any songs that were since 1940 or so. <laughs> but uh, he does some beautiful standards, especially Hoagy Carmichael songs. Uh, you know, ain't misbehaving songs like that. Just classics. What is the best thing about being happy, Trom? <laughs> Maybe still being alive at 84, 83. I'm not 84, I'm 83. I just had my birthday yesterday, just so you know. Oh, uh, happy yeah, belated. Turned 83 yesterday. You know, I feel like I've had a much better life than I deserve. Uh, I have a, a fantastic partner and wife. I have kids that have turned out to be as good people as I could have imagined and four grandchildren that I feel the same way about. I feel like to a certain extent, I've, I have a lot of friends who care about me and there's nothing better than, and who I care about. But, that, you know, I, I'm sure it's a cliche about wealth being the friends that you have, <laughs> mm. but I feel like I feel like I'm pretty wealthy in that. And, you know, I, I lead a fairly, a reasonably comfortable life and, and with friends and, and family and my guitars. You know, <laughs> I have more guitars than I need at this point too, including this one, which is, I'm just going to show you this. This is my, uh, my brand new signature model, Santa Cruz. And my, I don't know if you can see my signature at the, up here. Ah, I see it. And that'll be uh, announced as we speak. It's a it's a thirteen fret. Uh, the model is called HT thirteen. So I'm I'm enormously proud of that. And I don't know when you're gonna. Well, I'll say air this, even though it's not on the air. It's uh, <laughs> it's but whenever you're gonna put this out, it'll it'll I'm sure it'll be announced by that time by Santa Cruz. It'll be Friday. Okay. Is that well, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're going to, I think they're going to announce it. Well, it doesn't matter. Even if it's next week, uh, people will get a, so your, your viewers got a, uh, a an exclusive inside look at, at this. It's a beautiful guitar. It really is. And it just, it sounds great. It looks great. Let's see if it's even a tune at this point. It's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I saw that guitar there throughout this interview, and I thought, I wonder if I could convince him just for a second to noodle on it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I didn't even have to ask, so I right. appreciate that. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. It really is. Well, I always like to end the show as an open, open forum. I, I just like to give the guests the stage. And I know that you'll have fans of yours who are going to be tuning into this. What would you say to anybody who has come in and dropped in and, and, and watched or listened? Well, I think um, 
you know, we're living in tough times. I think all times are probably tough, but this, you know, with this uh, virus that's stopped the world pretty much and uh, with the strife that's going on in our country, I think we, it, it's more important than ever to be active, to say what you think, to engage people and be proactive about the right things. Uh, and of course, it's not, a, it won't be a secret that I'm on the left, left side of that, um, you know, in terms of civil rights and uh, the rights of people not to be in poverty and the rights of people not to be enslaved by circumstances, even if not literally enslaved. I think there are a lot of people who are enslaved just because of inequities of various kinds. And I think to some extent, not, not, you know, Pete Seeger used to think that he could change things with his songs. I'm not sure that's possible, but it certainly helps people get through hard times. And I would just um, say, picking up an instrument or picking up a paintbrush or picking up anything that gets a pen to write with, uh, anything that gets you your, your thoughts flowing and get, get you in touch with, with bigger things than just yourself and whatever things are, are bugging you at the moment. And to think about other people too, think, be compassionate. I think that's been sorely lacking in our country among certain people anyway, and still is. So to me, and I think sharing music with people is a big part of compassion. You know, you're doing it for yourself, but you're also sharing it with others. And I think that's a really important thing to do. So that's about as much of a soapbox as I can get on right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody out there, again, they can go to homespun.com and also to check out the music of Happy Trom, it's happytrom.com, T-R-A-U-M. And thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for sharing. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. I really enjoyed it. I uh, have to say you you challenged me with some of your questions, which was good. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to spend the time with you. Thanks. It's an honor. All right, sir. Well, keep me apprised of this, of this forthcoming album this summer. I will do that. Sure. All right, sir. Until next time. Yep. Bum up a beep boot boop da beep a leap a knock at the bees. I walk on tea sugar like it's a little bit.